Stand with me reading of God's word. This is Hebrews 13, 7 and 8. It says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Father, I ask that we as your people in this room would hear your voice, that we would hear the things that you want to teach us, that we, like John, would be a people who in our lives have stories to tell about the wonderful things that you have done for and through and in us. We ask that, that we would know you better and people would know you better through the way that we live and portray you to the world around us. Amen. Have a seat. So we are starting the Gospel of John today. Got a new background on the stage. Jackie Good just sews these things for us. We, we buy like all this material and we like, here. And she lays it out in her living room and like, I don't know how it works because I don't even want to go over and see it happen. But it's like, and she sews these things. So hey, you know, it's, it, lo- it looks pretty good. So we got a new book. We got a new stage design, kind of like that. We're going to be in the book of John till June. You're welcome. Okay, whatever. Uh, before we start the Gospel of John, uh, there's a couple things I want to do today. And, and one of those is that I want you to know who John is. Who John is, what he did in his life, his love, his passion, his commitment to his rabbi and his friend and his God named Jesus. John is a great user of words. He uses words and metaphors like, like branch and vine and dark and light and life and death. And he uses all these things to portray the things that he wants people to know and hear about Jesus. If you go all the way to the book of Revelation, John is using colors and shapes and sounds and, and all these ideas. And so this morning you have to use your imagination a little bit. Okay? You've got to put yourself into John's place, seeing the things that he saw. There are more commentaries on the book of John than any other book in the Bible, which makes it very hard to whittle down what to talk to you guys about, about this. So this morning we're going to hit on their relationship, what that looked like, student and teacher. Now, who in here went to school? Yeah, even, I went up to the third grade, whatever. You still went to school. That, that's good. Your relationship with your teacher is going to be different than John's relationship with his teacher and rabbi, Jesus. As a rabbi, John would have lived with Jesus. He would have spent all this time with Jesus. As a matter of fact, uh, even today, disciples of rabbis follow them everywhere. If the rabbis go to the bathroom, they even want to go to the bathroom with the rabbis because they don't want to miss anything that they might do. Oh, he didn't squeeze the charmin. Oh, I shouldn't squeeze the charmin. You know, something like that. Or, I'm sure sometimes they're in the bathroom and it's like, well, I could have missed that, you know, stuff like that. But they want to follow them everywhere because they don't want to miss a thing that they might do. And so, you know, it's like if, if, you, if you go to school today and you go to even some place like Hancock and, you know, you sit in Astronomy 101, there's a hundred students in there. And the teacher couldn't pick you out of a police lineup if you egged his car on the weekend. It is much different between John and his rabbi. In John's day, you went and lived with your teacher. Uh, the purpose of going to a teacher is to have them educate you in their way of thinking so that one day you could try to be just like that rabbi, so that you could live the life that he lived, that you could teach the way that he taught and do the things that he did. And this affection between student and teacher would come together and make a lifelong commitment between them. And so I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. And this morning I'm going to give you some highlights with John and Jesus and their life together. And one of the things that John wants you to see is that Jesus existed as God, that Jesus created all things, and he creates man to have a relationship with him. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1, Old Testament. 
This is first. Jesus is eternal God worshipped in heaven. Isaiah 6.1 In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, with each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. When you go to the book of John, uh, John uh, there you go. If you go to the book of John, it, it uh, references this, and then he goes to John 53, 1, and then in John 12, 41, he says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So John says this, God, this is Jesus. And so John worshiped Jesus as the eternal God. So God makes, Jesus makes everything. He makes man. Man turns his back on God. God the Father knows that man will never be able to make his way back to him, so he sends Jesus to pursue us. And Jesus comes off of his throne in complete humility. This throne that Isaiah talks about comes off of his throne to a teenage virgin in a dumpy, rural, little town like Sisquak or Cuyama. Sorry if you hear from those towns. Los Alamos. Who else can I offend? Let's see. Okay. If a little town like that, he is born to this teenage virgin girl in this town as a man, as a missionary to us. Jesus, though, at his birth was still worshipped by angels and wise men. You see this in Luke chapter 2, in Matthew chapter 2. So even though Jesus comes humble, he is still met with worship by certain people because the glory of God still breaks through. Then Jesus grows up. Turn to Luke 2.52. He grows up just like you and I got to grow up. Luke 2.52. I'll let you guys get this. You're going to be all over the place this morning. You're welcome again for that. It says this, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus grew up. He went through puberty, just like you and me. I mean, imagine God didn't skip junior high. I would. If I was going to be like, I'll just boop, skip those years and, you know, no funky half beard thing, no change in voice, you know, whatever. Jesus spends 90% of his life doing what you and I do. He goes to work. He goes to school, whatever. His dad is a carpenter. People think his mom is a tramp and his dad is stupid because he married the woman who said, God got me pregnant. Okay? His entire life. And then Jesus grows up and Jesus goes out to teach. Again, you have to use your imagination in this. John is probably the youngest of all the disciples. He's probably late teens, early 20s. And the picture you get between Jesus and John is this image that Jesus is like John's big brother. That's the image you get. Some, some people say when you look at John, you see someone who really enjoyed who Jesus was and how he lived. He loved Jesus deeply. And so John and his brother James, they run a fishing business. And then Jesus shows up. Being a fisherman in this day was considered prestigious. In our day, it's kind of like, well, it's kind of gross. There's guts and you smell really bad all the time. In this day, not so much. They had money to buy nets. They had money to buy boats. They had employees. They were like business partners, you know, in this thing. And actually, most commentators will tell you that they were probably business partners with Peter at the time. And so Jesus comes and he calls John to be his disciple. In Matthew 4.21 it says, going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. John, here's Jesus' words, come follow me, be my disciple. And John walks away from his income and his security. He is probably single at this point in his life, and he leaves his ability to make a dowry. 
And so he will probably have a strong chance that he will remain single his entire life. Over time, lots of people start to follow Jesus. They start to, to come to him and want to be his students as well. To the point where Jesus is a teacher and he has to pare down the class so he can teach certain people. And after a night of prayer, Scripture tells you that Jesus chose his 12 disciples. Now, can you imagine being John as Jesus goes to choose his 12? Going, you're like the kid at recess going, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me. And Jesus goes to the list and he picks John to be one of his disciples. John was a zealous pupil. Uh, John learned well, eventually becoming a teacher of his own, passing on all the truths that Jesus taught to him, to other faithful people, who have in turn handed off to other people, to others, which has come down to us today. Jesus taught John, performed miracles before him, and worshipped with him for three years. For three years. If you read through the Gospels, you read all this stuff that Jesus did. John saw it. Firsthand, when Jesus walks on water, when Jesus heals somebody, when Jesus brings somebody back from the dead, John is there. John sees those things. Also, Jesus being a good Jew would have gone to festivals, temples, uh, holidays, celebrations. John got to see Jesus worship. Turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. I'll show you something I think is just really cool. Matthew 26, 30, and it says this. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Imagine John got to sit next to Jesus while Jesus sang songs. It's amazing. John learned from the best. Uh, John could also be a knucklehead, all right? Uh, James and John, uh, they come to Jesus one day, and they say, Jesus, we would like you to do something for us. And Jesus says, what? And he, sa- and he says, when you sit on your throne... Would you give us two thrones, me and my brother, one on either side of you, one on the left and, and one on the right? It's a little presumptuous. It's kind of like you can tell he's really young because only young dudes ask something dumb like that of God. You know, in the best light, you see that John is, is really zealous. He wants a little bit of change. But Jesus tells him, some people want this type of power to lord it over other people. But you are not supposed to be that way. You are supposed to be a servant. And so what Jesus does at this point, after they ask this, is he gives John and his brother a nickname. He gives them the nickname Boenergies, which means sons of thunder. Okay? Sociologists will tell you that those you identify with most closely, you will typically give nicknames to. Uh, a great example, and he's probably going to kill me for using that example, but Mikey, he does sound for us. And you guys, Mikey's not his name. <laughs> his name is Michael. Uh, I have been on business things with Mikey, and, and we've been talking to some people, and I've been like, oh, and Mikey, Cole, can... Because I'm just, actually, all of you, if you know him, you probably call him Mikey because we call him Mikey because it's this term of endearment. At, at one point, some of my friends and I were going to shoot this video and we were giving each other nicknames for it, like we're going to be superheroes. And so John Warren likes to fix everything, so we're going to call him the Tinkerer. And we had this friend, his name was Todd. He used to walk in front of mirrors and be all. Okay. So we're going to call him the Flexer, okay? and they were going to call me the Interrupter. If you've ever been in a room having a conversation and I want to talk to you, uh, it's, my, it's my gift. I will interrupt you. It's how it works. Uh, Mark Pruitt, we have started to call Rudy Cooper. If you, yeah, I, I won't tell you. If you don't know what it is, sorry. Uh, it's a show you shouldn't watch, but he looks just like Rudy Cooper. Anyway, so you give th- these nicknames. The God of the universe looks at John and gives him a nickname. 
I mean, imagine that. Gives John a nickname. Beautiful relationship. Jesus doesn't crush John's passion. He redirects it to where it's supposed to go. Jesus loves John like a kid brother. Like a kid brother. What you see is after the resurrection, Mary sees Jesus, she runs and tells the disciples. And in John chapter 20, verse 2, it says, So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Jesus loved John like a kid brother. And John writes this humbly. It's not like, well, Judas is a bum and Peter's got a big mouth, but Jesus loves me. I mean, that's not how he writes that. It it is humble. He's like, Jesus loves me just like Jesus loves you. And you see Jesus and John together. And if you look through the New Testament, John has the clearest insight on love in the entire New Testament. John does. Jesus placed John in the inner circle with Peter and James. Uh, John is one of the most trusted men in Jesus' life. One of the most trusted men. At one point, Jesus is teaching between twenty and 30,000 people. He sends out 72 disciples to do things. He has the inner core of 12. Then he has the inner core of that, which is three people. John, James, and Peter, the inner core. John is one of those people. It's kind of like you and I. We have lots of people we come into contact with, but there are very, very few friends that you let in, that you joke with, that know you, that you can just be a dork around, that have seen you at your best and your worst and love you anyway. That's the relationship that John has with Jesus. Jesus knows him intimately. And you see later in Acts and in church history, will tell you that Peter and John always had a close relationship. They stayed close together. And that relationship that Jesus developed between them stayed. They were privy to things with Jesus that nobody else was. Like this, John saw Jesus transfigured. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus goes up on this hill. And all of a sudden, his glory breaks through and he is transfigured and he becomes glorified and he is radiant white and it is this... And John and James and Peter are like, holy cow, Elijah and Moses, they show up. And God the Father speaks. In Matthew 17, 2, it says, there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. This is the inner circle. They got to see this. Moses and Elijah show up. They get to eat lunch with Moses and Elijah. Peter gets all chatty Cathy. John gets very contemplative. Peter goes, wow, let's build some houses. This will be great. We'll have a cul-de-sac. Elijah, Moses, God, me. We can homeschool. Moses and my kids can play together. This will be great. right?" And then Jesus is like, what? What are you doing? And I'm sure all the way down the hill, John is just looking at Peter going, you build a house. It's stupid. And I'm sure he's just razzing him the whole time. He's there in the middle of this, and he gets to see these people do these things. And John has this wonderful relationship with Jesus. Uh, John and Peter prepared for the Last Supper. Prepared for the Last Supper. Uh, They get sent into town to make preparations for Jesus' final meal. You see the pictures of the Last Supper, right? I want you to turn to John, uh, 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. It's like four books from the end of the Bible. Okay. See the pictures of the Last Supper. You know, John's there. John actually makes the meal. Now, you read some books today, and they say, well, this isn't how it happened. This wasn't what it looked like. It's all conjecture. 1 John 1.1 1, 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John says, I was there. It all happened. I was there. Imagine John making the meal and waiting for Jesus to show up and be like, I made the meal, I made the meal, I made the Passover meal. Then Jesus 
shows up and he's like, John is a guy that Jesus could give a job to and he knew it would get done. John reclined on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. This is in John 13. This is the very first communion that we celebrate every week. Where did John sit? Right next to Jesus. And the seat he sat in is actually called the seat of friendship. The seat of friendship. John asked Jesus who would betray him. Also in John 13, they're sitting around the meal. Jesus starts talking about betrayal. And Peter leans over to John and goes, ask him what he's talking about. Why? Because Jesus loved John. And John sits in the seat of friendship. When John hears that, that Jesus is going to be betrayed, John's first thought, because he loves him so much, is, is this me? Is it me? And so he asks Jesus. And then he sees Judas betray him. I mean, as a side note, Judas was probably a zealot. They were bent on armed resistance to the Romans. And when Jesus didn't call for armed resistance to the Romans, he probably became disillusioned, and that's one of the reasons why he betrayed him. John saw Jesus weep and sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. This is where where Jesus prays before he is murdered, and he takes John with him. John sees it, and when Jesus prays, he is so anguished that the sweat gets mingled with blood, and and it drops to the ground, and there's all these articles and all this conjecture about this. And John was there. John saw it happen. John and Peter followed Jesus through his trials. You can see this in John chapter 18. He sees, and this is the interesting, you see Judas betray him. And, and what I think is really interesting about this is that Jude, Judas and John both spent time with Jesus. And I think it comes down to, you can see this as an issue of the heart. You know, where is our heart? Same God. But Judas conspired to get around God, to get around Jesus, to do the things that he wanted to do, armed resistance, where John simply followed what Jesus said. I mean, imagine John, so in love with Jesus, and he watches another disciple betray him. And then he sees Jesus go and gets run from trial to false trial to false trial. John followed Jesus, and he watched it all firsthand. When, the, when Pilate says, I'm going to release somebody to you today because I'm allowed to do that, so it's either going to be this murderer that nobody likes called Barabbas or Jesus, John's there yelling, Jesus, while everybody else is yelling, Barabbas, and he gets drowned out, and they release Barabbas. Jesus appointed John to care for his mother at his death. This is John 19. When you're dying on the cross, okay, not that any of you may actually experience this, but if you're dying on the cross and your thought is someone, who's going to look after my mom because Jesus is the eldest son, it's his job, who do you ask to take care of your mom? Your closest and best and most trusted friend. And that is John. When Jesus is in agony, in agony on the cross, who does he look at? John. John is the only disciple that we know for certain was actually at the cross. John watched Jesus' crucifixion and death. John saw Jesus spit upon, stripped naked, laid a crossbar laid upon him, strung up between two thieves, and John is right there at the foot of the cross. And I don't know if you're John, can you even breathe through those tears that you have at that moment, seeing your friend and your God die. And what I think is amazing is that John is there at the moment, at the moment, All sin is lifted off of him and you and me and laid upon Jesus. John was there the moment and he knew that Jesus just died for him. And he watched Jesus stabbed, wrapped in linens, taken from the cross and laid in the tomb. 
John was the first disciple to arrive at the empty tomb. At the Roman guards watching the tomb, they seal it with the seal, and, and there's this huge amount of loss. I mean, I can't imagine if it happened to my wife, if my wife died. I'd be like, ah, oh, John loses his rabbi and his best friend and his God. He's, he's devastated. The women go, and they see the empty tomb, and they go back and they tell the disciples, and John runs to the tomb. So fast he beats out everybody there. John was the first to recognize Jesus risen from death. In John 21, you have John and Peter and the disciples, and they're out fishing again because they're like, well, what do we do now? You know, everything's kind of nuts. So they're out fishing. Jesus shows up on the shore one day after the resurrection while they're out fishing. And he is the first to recognize him. He looks over and he says, it's the Lord. So Peter goes, yes, it is. And he dives off the boat. And John has to pull in all the nets and get all the fish in and get to the shore. And Because you know, John does his job. Peter just kind of jumps in the water and, and, and takes off. You know, it's when, when Thomas, doubting Thomas, says, I will not believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless I can put my finger in the hole in his hand and stick my fist in his side when jesus shows up and he goes all right thomas go for it john's there john gets to see thomas go ew he gets to see it he is there in the midst of it john saw the disciples change from cowards who ran to men who would die for their convictions when Jesus gives the great commission, going to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. John is there. John actually heard that. He heard that. John saw Jesus ascend into heaven in Acts 1. He was there. And John, at this point, he becomes a rabbi like Jesus. And John actually trained the majority of pastors in the early church. John saw Jesus glorified in the book of Revelation, and John eventually led the early church through two brutal seasons of persecution. History works, works like this. Just in a nutshell, make it very small and very quick and simple. Rome is huge. Rome takes over many nations, and in many nations there are many religions. And in many nations, you would have trade guilds. And with these trade guilds, you would worship a deity associated with that trade guild. Well, Rome would come in, and they didn't care about who you worshipped as long as you worshipped Caesar over and above all the other gods. But they couldn't figure Christians out because they wouldn't bow down to Caesar. They had to choose between the government and Jesus. They would choose Jesus. If they had to choose between death and denying Jesus, they would choose death. Persecution comes because they're in an intolerant society, much like ours is becoming today. And the first huge persecution that you really see in history is from a guy named Nero. Uh, Nero actually kills the women who helped raise him. Uh, anyone he distrusted, he would kill. At one point, Rome starts to burn. And, and there's history books will tell you that Nero probably wanted it to burn. He left it burning, didn't send anybody to go put the fire out because he wanted it to burn so he could rebuild it with temples to himself. So as it starts to burn, nobody goes. It just burns more and more. Eventually, the people get very upset. They storm the gates of Nero's, of Nero's palace, and they want to kill him. And what does Nero do? He goes, oh, no, no, it's not me. It's those Christians. Those Christians started it. They say their God's a consuming fire. He will consume with fire. They started it. And all of a sudden, the first great persecution begins, and they start going after Christians. And so Christians, at this point, they get drawn and quartered. They get tied up between animals and whipped. And all of a sudden, boom, your arms, your legs go flying off, and you're lying in pieces. And they say, you're going to deny Jesus and worship Caesar. They would be wrapped in skins and, and thrown to wild animals for sport. They would take Christians, and they would roll them in tar, and they'd put them in Nero's garden and light them up for light poles, and Nero would put people in the back of his chariot and ride them around so they could see the spectacle 
of Christians burning. Young women were raped repeatedly, disfigured. Will you deny Christ and worship Caesar? John went through two of these. Two of these. John was a pastor. He married people like I have married people. He, have, he visited people in the hospital like I have. And John on the way to work would sometimes have to walk by piled corpses of people under his care. And yet, he would still preach, you need Jesus. Jesus loves you. Jesus has a purpose and plan for your life. Well, that's the purpose and plan? Maybe. But he loves you. And he would preach this to the people. People he led to Christ, did the wedding part, prayed for the night before, died, murdered, and he never stopped. John outlived all the other apostles despite his attempted murder. Judas killed himself. Peter's hung upside down. All the other apostles, they, they were martyred, but they couldn't kill John. There's these stories about John just wouldn't die. Matter of fact, there's one story where he's actually boiled in oil. And he doesn't die. We romanticize this thing. Oh, the oil just bounced off him. No, John probably spent the majority of his life covered in scars because of the persecution against him. And because they couldn't kill him, they sent him to isolation on an island called Patmos, which is in Turkey. And there he writes the book of Revelation. John is released from this exile. And what does he do? Preaches again. Preaches again. And people say, oh, well, the people in the New Testament, they made all that stuff up. Why? Why would you make that stuff up? They were murdered, staked up like garbage, beaten, boiled, drawn and quartered. Why? You don't speak that unless it's truth. Someone's going to throw me in a, in a thing of oil and I'm lying. I'm be like, oh, no, no, you're right. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. <laughs> That's, I don't want to go there. They died for the things they believed in. John wrote five books of the Bible. John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation. John saw Jesus worship in the glory of heaven in the book of Revelation. And there's this huge debate on worship that comes about today. And where do you look? Some people say Old Testament. I say you look to John. John hung out with Jesus. And at the end of time, Zephaniah 3.17 says, God will sing over us. Can't imagine how that sounds. I know John got to sing songs and worship like that way with Jesus. But our God is a poet and musician. And he loves to sing. And I will tell you this, that no one in the history of the world had known Jesus better, loved him more, served him more faithfully than John. And as we study the book of John, it's imperative we do not just whittle this thing down to a bunch of debates. Because John heard Jesus say, preach the good news about me. And that's what John did. Even as an old man, he would tell stories about Jesus. John preached until his death at roughly the age of 100 years old, unheard of at this time. And too old and feeble to preach or even stand, people would carry him into the church. And in a small little voice, he would articulate what he believed Jesus' will was for his followers. And he would say, little children... Love one another. Love one another. I mean, John could look and he would say, I saw him call Lazarus from the grave. I saw him feed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves. I saw him walk on water. I saw Peter sink, you know, and I knew he loved me. I knew he loved me. John knew Jesus loved him. And if you strip it down to the basic, Jesus loves you and you should love him back. Romans 5, eight says, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. John 15.13, Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did. I mean, John says, Jesus just doesn't love him. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants to be your friend, your Lord, your God, your hope, your salvation. 
That's what he says. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus defeated our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And the most important thing is that you would love Jesus because he loves you. And you and I must follow the example of John in worshiping Jesus, our loving God, because he's extended a hand of friendship to us through the pen of his best friend, John. And so you, one day, you one day will have stories like John to tell the people around you that this is what Jesus did for me. This is what Jesus said. This is how he changed my life. This is how I was able to reach out and touch somebody else. This is what Jesus did. And you will have stories to tell other people, just like John. But you have to start by loving him. You have to start by living for him. And if you have never done that, today is the day that you need to start. And if you've gotten off track, and maybe you don't have the stories like you used to, start loving Jesus today. And those stories will come about how Jesus loves you, how he changed you, and what he wants to do in other people around you. And you will have stories like John. The band's going to come up. And we're going to worship Jesus this morning through communion. And I ask that as you come up, you would take off a piece of the cracker, you would break it like Christ's body was broken for us. You would dip it in the wine or the grape juice to remember that death and that life that was given for you and I and that Jesus wants to live in and through us going to worship God through prayer. There'll be some elders in the back of the room that if you're like, man, I want to love Jesus and I've gotten so off track, they will pray for you. We're going to worship God through some song. The band's going to lead some songs. Sean and his big red fro. The band's going to lead some songs. And it gives you some time to contemplate, you know, how Jesus loves you, how you can love him back. We're going to worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the sidewall and in the back of the room. And I worship God through fellowship so you guys can hang out together and talk and get to know other Christians and their stories. Maybe somebody's just really new. What's your story? This is what Jesus did for me. And they're all amazing. And then you go and you live your life outside these walls because that is what is most important. And people will know Jesus because of your story, because you love him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would help us to be like John that we could see all the things that you have done in our lives and we could then share those stories. Father, I ask that you would take the truth of who you are and the truth of your gospel and teach us to live in the way that you are glorified and that our lives reflect your love us. Amen.